Section 26 of What is Property? This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeremy Wong. What is Property? An Enquiry into the Principle of Right and of Government by Pierre-Joseph Proudhon. Translated by Benjamin R. Tucker. Second Memoir, Part 4. M. Girard of A. Footnote, inquiries concerning property among the Romans, and a footnote, quotes the testimony of Cicero, Seneca, Plutarch, Olympiodorus, and Photius. Under Vespasian and Titus, Pliny the naturalist exclaimed, Large estates have ruined Italy and are ruining the provinces. But it never has been understood that the extension of property was effected then, as it is today, under the aegis of law, and by virtue of the Constitution. When the Senate sold captured lands at auction, it was in the interest of the treasury and of public welfare. When the patricians bought up possessions and property, they realized the purpose of the Senate's decrees. When they lent at high rates of interest, they took advantage of a legal privilege. Property, said the lender, is the legal right to enjoy even to the extent of abuse, that is, the right to lend at interest, to lease, to acquire, and then to lease and lend again. But property is also the right to exchange, to transfer, and to sell. If, then, the social condition is such that the proprietor, ruined by usury, may be compelled to sell his possession, the means of his subsistence, he will sell it. And, thanks to the law, accumulated property, devouring anthropophagous property, will be established. Footnote. Its acquisitive nature works rapidly in the sleep of the law. It is ready, at the word, to absorb everything. Witness the famous equivocation about the oxide, which, when cut up into thongs, was large enough to enclose the site of Carthage. The legend has reappeared several times since Dido. Such is the love of man for the land. Limited by tombs, measured by the members of the human body, by the thumb, the foot, and the arm, it harmonizes, as far as possible, with the very proportions of man. Nor is he satisfied yet. He calls to heaven to witness that it is his. He tries, too, or his land, to give it the very form of heaven. In his titanic intoxication, he describes property in the very terms which he employs in describing the Almighty, Fundus Optimus Maximus. He shall make it his couch, and they shall be separated no more. Michelet, Origin of French Law, End of footnote. The immediate and secondary cause of the decline of the Romans was, then, the internal dissensions between the two orders of the Republic, the Patricians and the Plebeians. Dissensions which gave rise to civil wars, prescriptions, and loss of liberty, and finally led to the empire. But the primary and immediate cause of their decline was the establishment by Numa of the institution of property. I end with an extract from a work which I have quoted several times already, and which has recently received a prize from the Academy of Moral and Political Sciences. The concentration of property, says M. Laboulay, while causing extreme poverty, forced the emperors to feed and amuse the people that they might forget their misery. Panem et circenses. That was the Roman law in regard to the poor, a dire and perhaps a necessary evil wherever a landed aristocracy exists. To feed these hungry mouths, grain was brought from Africa and the provinces, and distributed gratuitously among the needy. In the time of Caesar, 320,000 people were thus fed. Augustus saw that such a measure led directly to the destruction of husbandry, but to abolish these distributions was to put a weapon within reach of the first aspirant for power. The emperor shrank at the thought. While grain was gratuitous, agriculture was impossible. Tillage gave way to pasturage, another cause of depopulation, 
even among slaves. Finally, luxury, carried further and further every day, covered the soil of Italy with elegant villas, which occupied whole cantons. Gardens and groves replaced the fields, and the free population fled to the towns. Husbandry disappeared almost entirely, and with husbandry, the husbandmen. Africa furnished the wheat, and Greece the wine. Tiberius complained bitterly of this evil, which placed the lives of the Roman people at the mercy of the winds and the waves. That was his anxiety. One day later, and three hundred thousand starving men walked the streets of Rome. That was a revolution. This decline of Italy and the provinces did not stop. After the reign of Nero, the population commenced in towns as noted as Antium and Tarentum. Under the reign of Pertinax, there was so much desert land that the emperor abandoned it, even that which belonged to the treasury, to whoever could cultivate it, besides exempting the farmers from taxation for a period of ten years. Senators were compelled to invest one-third of their fortunes in real estate in Italy, but this measure served only to increase the evil which they wished to cure. To force the rich to possess in Italy was to create the largest estates which had ruined the country. And must I say, finally, that Aurelian wished to send the captives into the desert lands of Etruria, and that Valentinian was forced to settle the Alamanni on the fertile banks of the Po? If the reader, in running through this book, should complain of meeting with nothing but quotations from other works, extracts from journals and public lectures, and comments upon laws, and interpretations of them, I would remind him that the very object of this memoir is to establish the conformity of my opinion concerning property with that universally held, that, far from aiming at a paradox, it has been my main study to follow the advice of the world, and, finally, that my sole pretension is to clearly formulate the general belief. I cannot repeat it too often, and I confess with pride, I teach absolutely nothing that is new, and I should regard the doctrine which I advocate as radically erroneous, if a single witness should testify against it. Let us now trace the revolutions in property among the barbarians. As long as the German tribes dwelt in their forests, it did not occur to them to divide and appropriate the soil. The land was held in common. Each individual could plow, sow, and reap. But when the empire was once invaded, they bethought themselves of sharing the land, just as they shared the spoils after a victory. Hence, says M. Laboulaye, the expressions Sorzburgundium Gothorum and Clero Uanthialan, hence the German words alod, alodium, and lus, lot, which are used in all modern languages to designate the gifts of chance. Allodial property, at least with the mass of coparsoners, was originally held then in equal shares, for all the prizes were equal, or at least equivalent. This property, like that of the Romans, was wholly individual, independent, exclusive, transferable, and consequently susceptible of accumulation and invasion. But, instead of its being, as was the case among the Romans, the large estate which, through increase in usury, subordinated and absorbed the small one among the barbarians, fonder of war than wealth, more eager to dispose of purpose than to appropriate things, it was the warrior who, through superiority of arms, enslaved his adversary. The Roman wanted matter, the barbarian wanted man. Consequently, in the feudal ages, rents were almost nothing, simply a hare, a partridge, a pie, a few pints of wine brought by a little girl, or a maypole set up within the suzerain's reach. In return, the vassal or incumbent had to follow the seigneur to battle, a thing which happened almost every day, and equip and feed himself at his own expense. 
This spirit of the German tribes, the spirit of companionship and association, governed the territory as it governed individuals. The lands, like the men, were secured to a chief or seigneur by a bond of mutual protection and fidelity. This subjection was the labor of the German epoch which gave birth to feudalism. By fair means or foul, every proprietor who could not be a chief was forced to be a vassal. Laboulay, History of Property. By fair means or foul, every mechanic who cannot be a master has to be a journeyman. Every proprietor who is not an invader will be invaded. Every producer who cannot, by the exploitation of other men, furnish products at less than their proper value will lose his labor. Corporations and masterships, which are hated so bitterly, but which will reappear if we are not careful, are the necessary results of the principle of competition which is inherent in property. Their organization was patterned formerly after that of the old feudal hierarchy, which was the result of the subordination of men and possessions. The times which paved the way for the advent of feudalism and the reappearance of large proprietors were times of carnage and the most frightful anarchy. Never before had murder and violence made such havoc with the human race. The tenth century, among others, if my memory serves me rightly, was called the Century of Iron. His property, his life, and the honor of his wife and children, always in danger, the small proprietor made haste to do homage to his seigneur, and to bestow something on the church of his freehold, that he might receive protection and security. Both facts and laws bear witness that from the sixth century the proprietors of small freeholds were gradually plundered or reduced by the encroachments of large proprietors and counts to the condition of either vassals or tributaries. The capitularies are full of repressive provisions, but the incessant reiteration of these threats only shows the perseverance of the evil and the impotency of the government. Oppression, moreover, varies but little in its methods. The complaints of the free proprietors and the gloans of the plebeians at the times of the Gracchi were one and the same. It is said that, whenever a poor man refused to give his estate to the bishop, the curate, the count, the judge, or the centurion, these immediately sought an opportunity to ruin him. They made him serve in the army until, completely ruined, he was induced, by fair means or foul, to give up his freehold. La Boulay, History of Property how many small proprietors and manufacturers have not been ruined by large ones through chicanery, lawsuits, and competition? Strategy, violence, and usury. Such are the proprietor's methods for plundering the laborer. Thus, we see property, at all ages and in all forms, oscillating by virtue of its principle between two opposite terms, extreme division and extreme accumulation. Property, at its first term, is almost null, Reduced to personal exploitation, it is property only potentially. At its second term, it exists in its perfection. Then it is truly property. When property is widely distributed, society thrives, progresses, and grows, and rises quickly to the zenith of its power. Thus, the Jews, after leaving Babylon with Esdras and Nehemiah, soon became richer and more powerful than they had been under their kings. Sparta was in a strong and prosperous condition during the two or three centuries which followed the death of Lycurgus. The best days of Athens were those of the Persian War. Rome, whose inhabitants were divided from the beginning into two classes, the exploiters and the exploited, knew no such peace. When property is concentrated, society, abusing itself, polluted, so to speak, grows corrupt, wears itself out. How shall I express this horrible idea? 
plunges into long-continued and fatal luxury. When feudalism was established, society had to die of the same disease which killed it under the Caesars, I mean accumulated property. But humanity, created for an immortal destiny, is deathless. The revolutions which disturb it are purifying crises, invariably followed by more vigorous health. In the 5th century, the invasion of the barbarians partially restored the world to a state of natural equality. In the 12th century, a new spirit pervading all society gave the slave his rights, and through justice, breathed new life into the heart of nations. It has been said, and often repeated, that Christianity regenerated the world. That is true, but it seems to me that there is a mistake in the date. Christianity had no influence upon Roman society. When the barbarians came, that society disappeared. For such is God's curse upon property. Every political organization based on the exploitation of man shall perish. Slave labor is death to the race of tyrants. The patrician families became extinct, as the feudal families did, and as all aristocracies must. It was in the Middle Ages when a reactionary movement was beginning to secretly undermine accumulated property, and that the influence of Christianity was first exercised to its full extent. The destruction of feudalism, the conversion of the serf into the commoner, the emancipation of the communes, and the admission of the third estate to political power were deeds accomplished by Christianity exclusively. I say Christianity, not ecclesiasticism, for the priests and bishops were themselves large proprietors, and as such persecuted the villains. Without the Christianity of the Middle Ages, the existence of the modern society could not be explained, and would not be possible. The truth of this assertion is shown by the very facts which M. Laboulaye quotes, although this author inclines to the opposite opinion. Footnote. M. Guizot denies that Christianity alone is entitled to the glory of the abolition of slavery. To this end, he says, many causes were necessary, the evolution of other ideas and other principles of civilization. So general an assertion cannot be refuted. Some of these ideas and causes should have been pointed out that we might judge whether their source was not wholly Christian, or whether at least the Christian spirit had not penetrated and thus fructified them. Most of the emancipation charters began with these words, For the love of God and the salvation of my soul. End of footnote. Now, we did not commence to love God and to think of our salvation until after the promulgation of the gospel. Number 1. Slavery among the Romans The Roman slave was, in the eyes of the law, only a thing. No more than an ox or a horse. He had neither property, family, nor personality. He was defenseless against his master's cruelty, folly, or cupidity. Sell your oxen that are past use, said Cato. Sell your calves, your lambs, your wool, your hides, your old plows, your old iron, your old slave, your sick slave, and all that is of no use to you. When no market could be found for the slaves that were worn out by sickness or old age, they were abandoned to starvation. Claudius was the first defender of this shameful practice. Discharge your old workman, says the economist of the proprietary school. Turn off that sick domestic, that toothless and worn-out servant. Put away the unserviceable beauty to the hospital with the useless mouths. The condition of these wretched beings improved little under the emperors, and the best that can be said of the goodness of Antoninus is that he prohibited intolerable cruelty as an abuse of property, expendent enim republicae 
Niki re re sua male ulatur, says Gaius. As soon as the churchmen in council, it launched an anathema against the masters who had exercised over their slaves this terrible right of life and death. Were not the slaves, thanks to the right of sanctuary and to their property, the dearest protégés of religion? Constantine, who embodied in the laws the grand ideas of Christianity, valued the life of a slave as highly as that of a freeman, and declared the master, who had intentionally brought death upon a slave, guilty of murder. Between this law and that of Antoninus, there is a complete revolution in our moral ideas. The slave was a thing. Religion has made him a man. Note the last words. Between the law of the gospel and that of Antoninus, there is a complete revolution in moral ideas. The slave was a thing. Revolution has made him a man. The moral revolution which transformed the slave into a citizen was effected, then, by Christianity before the barbarians set foot upon the soil of the empire. We have only to trace the progress of this moral revolution in the personnel of history. But, M. Laboulaye rightly says, it does not change the condition of men in a moment any more than that of things. Between slavery and liberty, there was an abyss which could not be filled in a day. The transitional step was servitude. Now, what servitude? In what did it differ from Roman slavery, and whence came this difference? Let the same author answer. Number two, of servitude. I see in the Lord's manner slaves charged with domestic duties. Some are employed in the personal service of the master. Others are charged with household cares. The women spin the wool. The men grind the grain, make the bread, or practice, in the interest of the signor, what little they know of the industrial arts. The master punishes them when he chooses, kills them with impunity, and sells them and theirs like so many cattle. The slave has no personality, and consequently no wear-guild. Footnote. Wear-guild, the fine paid for the murder of a man. So much for a count, so much for a baron, so much for a freeman, so much for a priest, for a slave, nothing. His value was restored to the proprietor. End of footnote. Peculiar to himself, he is a thing. The wear-guild belongs to the master as compensation for the loss of his property. Whether the slave is killed or stolen, the indemnity does not change, for the injury is the same. But the indemnity increases or diminishes according to the value of the serf. In all these particulars, Germanic slavery and Roman servitude are alike. This similarity is worthy of notice. Slavery is always the same, whether in a Roman villa or on a barbarian farm. The man, like the ox and the ass, is part of the livestock. A price is set upon his head. He is a tool without a conscience, a chattel without personality, an impeccable, irresponsible being who has neither rights nor duties. Why did his condition improve? In good reason, when the serf began to be regarded as a man, and, as such, the law of the Visigoths, under the influence of Christian ideas, punished with fine or banishment any one who maimed or killed him. Always Christianity, always religion, though we should like to speak of the laws only. Did the philanthropy of the Visigoths make its first appearance before or after the preaching of the gospel? This point must be cleared up. After the conquest, the serfs were scattered over the large estates of the barbarians, each having his own house, his lot, and his peculium, 
in return for which he paid rent and performed service. They were rarely separated from their homes when their land was sold. They, and all that they had, became the property of the purchaser. The law favored this realization of the serf in not allowing him to be sold out of the country. What inspired the law, destructive not only of slavery, but of property itself? For, if the master cannot drive from his domain the slave, whom he has at once established there, it follows that the slave is the proprietor as well as the master. The barbarians, again says M. Laboulaye, were the first to recognize the slave's rights of family and property, two rights which are incompatible with slavery. But was this recognition the necessary result of the mode of servitude in vogue among the Germanic nations previous to their conversion to Christianity? or was it the immediate effect of that spirit of justice infused with religion by which the seigneur was forced to respect the serf a soul equal to his own a brother in jesus christ purified by the same baptism and redeemed by the same sacrifice of the son of god in the form of man for we must not close our eyes to the fact that though the barbarian morals and the ignorance and carelessness of the seigneurs who busy themselves mainly with wars and battles paying little or no attention to agriculture may have been great aids in the emancipation of the serfs still the vital principle of this emancipation was essentially christian suppose that the barbarians had remained pagans in the midst of a pagan world as they did not change the gospel so they would not have changed the polytheistic customs slavery would have remained what it was they would have continued to kill the slaves who were desirous of liberty family and property whole nations would have been reduced to the condition of helots nothing would have changed upon the terrestrial stage except the actors the barbarians were less selfish less imperious less dissolute and less cruel than the romans such was the nature upon which after the fall of the empire and the revolution of society christianity was to act but this nature grounded as in the former times upon slavery and war, would, by its own energy, have produced nothing but war and slavery. Gradually the serfs obtained the privilege of being judged by the same standard as their masters. When, how, and by what title did they obtain this privilege? Gradually their duties were regulated. Whence came the regulations? Who had the authority to introduce them? The master took a part of the labor of the serf, three days, for instance and left the rest to him, as for Sunday that belonged to God. And what established Sunday, if not religion? Whence I infer that the same power which took it upon itself to suspend hostilities and lighten the duties of the serf was also that which regulated the judiciary and created a sort of law for the slave. But this law itself, on what did it bear? What was its principle? What was the philosophy of the councils and popes with reference to this matter? The reply to all these questions, coming from me alone, would be distrusted. The authority of M. Laboulaye shall give credence to my words. This holy philosophy, to which the slaves were indebted for every thing, this invocation of the gospel, was an anathema against property. The proprietors of small freeholds, that is, the freemen of the middle class, had fallen, in consequence of the tyranny of the nobles, into a worse condition than that of the tenants and serfs. The expenses of war weighed less heavily upon the serf than upon the freeman, and, as for legal protection, it was the seigneurial court, where the serf was judged by his peers, was far preferable to the cantonal assembly. It was better to have a noble for a seigneur than for a judge. So it is better today to have a man of large capital for an associate than for a rival. 
the honest tenant the laborer who earns weekly a moderate but consistent salary is more to be envied than the independent but small farmer or the poor licensed mechanic at that time all were either seniors or serfs oppressors or oppressed then under the protection of convents or of the seigneurial turret new societies were formed which silently spread over the soil made fertile by their hands and which derived their power from the annihilation of the free classes whom they enlisted in their behalf as tenants these men acquired from generation to generation sacred rights over the soil which they cultivated in the interest of lazy and pillaging masters as fast as the social tempest ablated it became necessary to respect the union and heritage of these villeins who by their labor had truly prescribed the soil for their own profit i ask how prescription could take effect when a contrary title and possession already existed m laboulaye is a lawyer where then did he ever see the labor of the slave and the cultivation by the tenant prescribe the soil for their own profit to the detriment of a recognized master daily acting as a proprietor let us not disguise matters as fast as the tenants and the serfs grew rich they wished to be independent and free they commenced to associate unfurl their municipal banners raise belfries fortify their towns and refuse to pay their seigneurial duties in doing these things they were perfectly right for in fact their condition was intolerable but in law i mean in roman and napoleonic law their refusal to obey and pay tribute to their masters was illegitimate now this imperceptible usurpation of property by the community was inspired by religion the seigneur had attached the serf to the soil religion granted the serf rights over the soil the seigneur imposed duties upon the serf religion fixed their limits the seigneur could kill the serf with impunity could deprive him of his wife violate his daughter pillage his house and rob him of his savings religion checked his invasions it excommunicated the seigneur religion was the real cause of the ruin of feudal property why should it not be bold enough today to resolutely condemn capitalistic property since the middle ages there has been no change in social economy except in its forms its relations remain unaltered the only result of the emancipation of the serfs that was property changed hands or rather that new proprietors were created sooner or later the extension of privilege far from curing the evil was to operate to the disadvantage of the plebeians nevertheless the new social organization did not meet with the same end in all places in lombardy for example where the people rapidly growing rich through commerce and industry soon conquered the authorities even to the exclusion of the nobles first the nobility became poor and degraded and were forced in order to live and maintain their credit to gain admission to the guilds then the ordinary subalternization of property leading to inequality of fortunes to wealth and property to jealousies and hatreds the cities passed rapidly from the rankest democracy under the yoke of a few ambitious leaders such was the fate of most of the lombardic cities genoa florence bologna milan pisa etc which afterwards changed rulers frequently but which have never since risen in favor of liberty the people can easily escape from the tyranny of despots but they do not know how to throw off the effects of their own despotism just as we avoid the assassin's steel while we succumb to a constitutional malady 
As soon as a nation becomes proprietor, either it must perish or a foreign invasion force must force it again to begin its evolutionary round. Footnote. The spirit of despotism and monopoly which animated the communes has not escaped the attention of historians. The formation of the commoners' associations, says Meyer, did not spring from the true spirit of liberty, but from the desire for exemption from the charges of the seigneurs, from individual interests, and the jealousy of the welfare of others. Each commune or corporation opposed the creation of every other, and this spirit increased to such an extent that the King of England, Henry V, having established a university at Caen in 1432, the university and city of Paris opposed the registration of the edict. End of footnote. The communes once organized, the kings treated them as superior vassals. Now, just as the under-vassal had no communication with the king except through the direct vassal, so also the commoners could enter no complaints except through the commune. Like causes produces like effects. Each commune had become a small and separate state, governed by a few citizens who sought to extend their authority over the others, who, in turn, revenged themselves upon the unfortunate inhabitants who had not the right of citizenship. Feudalism in unemancipated countries and oligarchy in the communes made nearly the same ravages. There were sub-associations, fraternities, tradesmen's associations in the communes, and colleges in the universities. The oppression was so great that it was no rare thing to see the inhabitants of a commune depending its oppression. Meyer, Judicial Institutions of Europe In France, the revolution was much more gradual. The communes, in taking refuge under the protection of the kings, had found them masters rather than protectors. Their liberty had long been lost, or, rather, their emancipation had been suspended. When feudalism received its death blow at the hand of Richelieu. Then liberty halted, the price of the feudatories held sole and undivided sway. The nobles, the clergy, the commoners, the parliaments, everything, in short, except a few seeming privileges, were controlled by the king, who, like his early predecessors, consumed regularly, and nearly always in advance, the revenues of his domain, and that domain was France. Finally, 89 arrived. The liberty resumed its march. A century and a half had been required to wear out the last form of feudal property. Monarchy. End of section 26, second memoir, port 4. Recording by Jeremy Wong.